Part eleven of the Lady of the Shroud by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part eleven. From Rupert's Journal continued. July ninth, nineteen o seven. We went at a terrific pace down the coast, keeping well in shore so as to avoid, if possible, being seen from the south. Just north of Ilson, a rocky headland juts out and that was our cover. On the north of the peninsula is a small landlocked bay with deep water. It is large enough to take the yacht, though a much larger vessel could not safely enter. We ran in and anchored close to the shore, which has a rocky frontage, a natural shelf of rock, which is practically the same as a quay. Here we met the men who had come from Ilson and the neighborhood in answer to our signaling earlier in the day. They gave us the latest information regarding the kidnapping of the Voivode, and informed us that every man in that section of the country was simply a flame about it. They assured us that we could rely on them not merely to fight to the death, but to keep silence absolutely. Whilst the seamen, under the direction of Rook, took the aeroplane on shore and found a suitable place for it, where it was hidden from casual view, but from which it could be easily launched, the Vladika and I, and of course my wife, were hearing such details as were known of the disappearance of her father. It seems that he travelled secretly in order to avoid just such a possibility as had happened. No one knew of his coming till he came to Fiume, whence he sent a guarded message to the Archbishop, which the latter alone would understand. But the Turkish agents were evidently on his track all the time, and doubtless the Bureau of Spies was kept well advised. He landed at Ilsen from a coasting steamer from Ragusa to the Levant. For two days before his coming, there had been quite an unusual number of arrivals at the little port, at which arrivals are rare. And it turned out that the little hotel, the only fairly good one in Ilsen, was almost filled up. Indeed, only one room was left, which the voivode took for the night. The innkeeper did not know the voivode in his disguise, but suspected who it was from the description. He dined quietly and went to bed. His room was at the back, on the ground floor, looking out on the bank of the little river Silva, which here runs into the harbour. No disturbance was heard in the night. Late in the morning, when the elderly stranger had not made his appearance, inquiry was made at his door. He did not answer, so presently the landlord forced the door and found the room empty. His luggage was seemingly intact, only the clothes which he had worn were gone. A strange thing was that, though the bed had been slept in and his clothes were gone, his nightclothes were not to be found, from which it was argued by the local authorities, when they came to make inquiry, that he had gone or been taken from the room in his nightgear, and that his clothes had been taken with him. There was evidently some grim suspicion on the part of the authorities, for they had commanded absolute silence on all in the house. When they came to make inquiry as to the other guests, it was found that one and all had gone in the course of the morning after paying their bills. None of them had any heavy luggage, and there was nothing remaining by which they might be traced, or which would afford any clue to their identity. The authorities, having sent a confidential report to the seat of government, continued their inquiries, and even now all available hands were at work on the investigation. When I had signaled to Vissarion before my arrival there, word had been sent through the priesthood, to enlist in the investigation the services of all good men 
so that every foot of ground in that section of the Blue Mountains was being investigated. The portmaster was assured by his watchman that no vessel, large or small, had left the harbour during the night. The inference, therefore, was that the voivode's captors had made inland with him, if indeed they were not already secreted in or near the town. Whilst we were receiving the various reports, a hurried message came that it was now believed that the whole party were in the silent tower. This was a well-chosen place for such an enterprise. It was a massive tower of immense strength built as a memorial, and also as a keep, after one of the massacres of the invading Turks. It stood on the summit of a rocky knoll some ten miles inland from the port of Ilsen. It was a place shunned as a rule, and the country all around it was so arid and desolate that there were no residents near it. As it was kept for state use and might be serviceable in time of war, it was closed with massive iron doors which were kept locked except upon certain occasions. The keys were at the seat of government in Plazat. If, therefore, it had been possible to the Turkish marauders to gain entrance and exit, it might be a difficult as well as a dangerous task to try to cut the voivode out. His presence with them was a dangerous menace to any force attacking them, for they would hold his life as a threat. I consulted with the Vladika at once as to what was best to be done, and we decided that though we should put a cordon of guards around it at a safe distance to prevent them receiving warning, we should at present make no attack. We made further inquiry as to whether there had been any vessel seen in the neighborhood during the past few days, and were informed that once or twice a warship had been seen on the near side of the southern horizon. This was evidently the ship which Rook had seen on his rush down the coast after the abduction of the Vorvodin, and which he had identified as a Turkish vessel. The glimpses of her which had been had were all in full daylight. There was no proof that she had not stolen up during the night time without lights. But the Vladika and I were satisfied that the Turkish vessel was watching, was in league with both parties of marauders, and was intended to take off any of the strangers or their prey who might reach Ilsen undetected. It was evidently with this view that the kidnappers of Tuta had, in the first instance, made with all speed for the south. It was only when disappointed there that they headed up north, seeking in desperation for some chance of crossing the border. That ring of steel had so far well served its purpose. I sent for Rook and put the matter before him. He had thought it out for himself to the same end as we had. His deduction was, Let us keep the cordon and watch for any signal from the silent tower. The Turks will tire before we shall, I undertake to watch the Turkish warship. During the night I shall run down south without lights and have a look at her, even if I have to wait till the grey of the dawn to do so. She may see us, but if she does I shall crawl away at such pace that she shall not get any idea of our speed. She will certainly come nearer before the day is over, for be sure the Bureau of Spies is kept advised and they know that when the country is awake each day increases the hazard of them and their plans being discovered. From their caution I gather that they do not court discovery, and from that that they do not wish for an open declaration of war. If this be so, why should we not come out to them and force an issue if need be? When Duta and I got a chance to be alone, we discussed the situation in every phase. The poor girl was in a dreadful state of anxiety regarding her father's safety. 
At first she was hardly able to speak, or even to think coherently. Her utterance was choked, and her reasoning palsied with indignation. But presently the fighting blood of her race restored her faculties, and then her woman's quick wit was worth the reasoning of a campful of men. Seeing that she was all on fire with the subject, I sat still and waited, taking care not to interrupt her. For quite a long time she sat still, whilst the coming night thickened. When she spoke, the whole plan of action, based on subtle thinking, had mapped itself out in her mind. We must act quickly. Every hour increases the risk to my father. Here her voice broke for an instant, but she recovered herself and went on. If you go to the ship, I must not go with you. It would not do for me to be seen. The captain doubtless knows of both attempts, that to carry me off as well as that against my father. As yet, he is in ignorance of what has happened. You and your party of brave royal men did their work so well that no news could go forth. So long, therefore, as the naval captain is ignorant, he must delay to the last. But if he saw me, he would know that that branch of the venture had miscarried. He would gather from our being here that we had news of my father's capture, and as he would know that the marauders would fail unless they were relieved by force, he would order the captive to be slain. Yes, dear, tomorrow you had perhaps better see the captain, but tonight we must try to rescue my father. Here I think I see a way. You have your aeroplane. Please, take me with you into the silent tower. Not for a world of chrysolite, said I, horrified. She took my hand and held it tight whilst she went on. Dear, I know, I know. Be satisfied, but it is the only way. You can, I know, get there and in the dark. But if you were to go in it, it would give warning to the enemies. And besides, my father would not understand. Remember, he does not know you. He has never seen you and does not, I suppose, even know as yet of your existence. But he would know me at once, and in any dress. You can manage to lower me into the tower by a rope from the aeroplane. The Turks as yet do not know of our pursuit, and doubtless rely, at all events in part, on the strength and security of the tower. Therefore their guard will be less active than it would at first or later on. I shall post, Father, in all details, and we shall be ready quickly. Now, dear, let us think out the scheme together. Let your man's wit and experience help my ignorance, and we shall save my father. How could I have resisted such pleading, even had it not seemed wise? But wise it was. And I, who knew what the aeroplane could do under my own guidance, saw at once the practicabilities of the scheme. Of course, there was a dreadful risk in case anything should go wrong. But we are at present living in a world of risks, and her father's life was at stake. So I took my dear wife in my arms and told her that my mind was hers for this, as my soul and body already were, and I cheered her by saying that I thought it might be done. I sent for Rourke and told him of the new adventure, and he quite agreed with me in the wisdom of it. I then told him that he would have to go and interview the captain of the Turkish warship in the morning if I did not turn up. I'm going to see the Vladika, I said. He will lead our own troops in the attack on the Silent Tower. But it will rest with you to deal with the warship. Ask the captain to whom or what nation the ship belongs. He is sure to refuse to tell, 
in such case mention to him that if he flies no nation's flag his vessel is a pirate ship and that you who are in command of the navy of the blue mountains will deal with him as a pirate is dealt with no quarter no mercy he will temporize and perhaps try a bluff but when things get serious with him he will land a force or try to and may even prepare to shell the town he will threaten to at any rate in such case deal with him as you think best or as near to it as you can he answered i shall carry out your wishes with my life it is a righteous task not that anything of that sort would ever stand in my way if he attacks our nation either as a turk or a pirate i shall wipe him out we shall see what our own little packet can do moreover any of the marauders who have entered the blue mountains from sea or otherwise shall never get out by sea i take it that we of my contingent shall cover the attacking party it will be a sorry time for us all if that happens without our seeing you and the voivoden for in such case we shall understand the worst iron as he was the man trembled that is so look i said we are taking a desperate chance we know but the case is desperate but we all have our duty to do whatever happens ours and yours is stern but when we have done it the result will be that life will be easier for others for those that are left before he left i asked him to send up to me three suits of the masterman bulletproof clothes of which we had a supply on the yacht two are for the voivoden and myself i said the third is for the voivode to put on the voivoden will take it with her when she descends from the aeroplane into the tower whilst any daylight was left i went out to survey the ground my wife wanted to come with me but i would not let her no i said you will have at the best a fearful tax on your strength and your nerves you will want to be as fresh as is possible when you get on the aeroplane like a good wife she obeyed and lay down to rest in the little tent provided for her i took with me a local man who knew the ground and who was trusted to be silent we made a long detour when we had got as near the silent tower as we could without being noticed i made notes from my compass as to directions and took good notice of anything that could possibly serve as a landmark by the time we got home i was pretty well satisfied that if all should go well i could easily sail over the tower in the dark then i had a talk with my wife and gave her full instructions when we arrive over the tower i said i shall lower you with a long rope you will have a parcel of food and spirit for your father in case he is fatigued or faint and of course the bulletproof suit which you must put on at once you will also have a short rope with a belt at either end one for your father the other for you when i turn the aeroplane and come back again you will have ready the ring which lies midway between the belts this you will catch into the hook at the end of the lowered rope when all is secure and i have pulled you both up by the windlass so as to clear the top i shall throw out ballast which we shall carry on purpose and away we go i am sorry it must be so uncomfortable for you both but there is no other way when we get well clear of the tower i shall take you both up on the platform if necessary i shall descend to do it and then we shall steer for ilson when all is safe our men will attack the tower we must let them do it for they expect it a few men in the clothes and arms which we took from your captors will be pursued by some of ours it is all arranged they will ask the turks to admit them and if the latter have not learned of your father's escape perhaps they will do so once in our men will try to open the gate the chances are against them poor fellows 
but they are all volunteers and will die fighting. If they win out, great glory will be theirs. The moon does not rise tonight till just before midnight, so we have plenty of time. We shall start from here at ten. If all be well, I shall place you in the tower with your father in less than a quarter hour from that. A few minutes will suffice to clothe him in bulletproof and get on his belt. I shall not be away from the tower for more than a very few minutes, and, please God, long before eleven we shall be safe. Then the tower can be won in an attack by our mountaineers. Perhaps, when the guns are heard on the ship of war, for there is sure to be firing, the captain may try to land a shore party, but Rook will stand in the way, and if I know the man and the lady, we shall not be troubled with many Turks tonight. By midnight, you and your father can be on the way to Visarion. I can interview the naval captain in the morning. My wife's marvellous courage and self-possession stood to her. At half an hour before the time fixed, she was ready for our adventure. She had improved the scheme in one detail. She had put on her own belt and coiled the rope round her waist, so the only delay would be in bringing her father's belt. She would keep the bulletproof dress intended to be his strapped in a packet on her back, so that if occasion should be favourable, he would not want to put it on till he and she should have reached the platform of the aeroplane. In such a case, I should not steer away from the tower at all, but would pass slowly across it and take up the captive and his brave daughter before leaving. I had learned from local sources that the tower was in several stories. Entrance was by the foot, where the great ironclad door was. Then came living rooms and storage, and an open space at the top. This would probably be thought the best place for the prisoner, for it was deep sunk within the massive walls, wherein was no loophole of any kind. This, if it should so happen, would be the disposition of things best for our plan. The guards would at this time be all inside the tower, probably resting, most of them, so that it was possible that no one might notice the coming of the airship. I was afraid to think that all might turn out so well, for in such case our task would be a simple enough one, and would in all human probability be crowned with success. At ten o'clock we started. Tuta did not show the smallest sign of fear or even uneasiness, though this was the first time she had ever even seen an aeroplane at work. She proved to be an admirable passenger for an airship. She stayed quite still, holding herself rigidly in the position arranged by the cords which I had fixed for her. When I had trued my course by the landmarks and with the compass, lit by the tiny, my electric light in the dark box, I had time to look about me. All seemed quite dark wherever I looked, to land or sea or sky. But darkness is relative, and though each quarter and spot looked dark in turn, there was not such absolute darkness as a whole. I could tell the difference, for instance, between land and sea, no matter how far off we might be from either. Looking upward, the sky was dark, yet there was light enough to see, and even distinguish, broad effects. I had no difficulty in distinguishing the tower towards which we were moving, and that, after all, was the main thing. We drifted slowly, very slowly, as the air was still, and I only used the minimum pressure necessary for the engine. I think I now understood for the first time the extraordinary value of the engine with which my Kitson was equipped. It was noiseless, it was practically of no weight, and it allowed the machine to progress as easily as the old-fashioned balloon used to drift before a breeze. Tuta, who had naturally very fine sight, seemed to see even better than I did, 
for as we drew nearer to the tower and its round open top began to articulate itself she commenced to prepare for her part of the task she it was who uncoiled the long drag rope ready for her lowering we were proceeding so gently that she as well as i had hopes that i might be able to actually balance the machine on the top of the curving wall a thing manifestly impossible on a straight surface though it might have been possible on an angle on we crept on and on there was no sign of light about the tower and not the faintest sound to be heard till we were almost close to the line of the rising wall then we heard a sound of something like mirth but muffled by distance and thick walls from it we took fresh heart for it told us that our enemies were gathered in the lower chambers if only the voivode should be on the upper stage all would be well slowly almost inch by inch and with a suspense that was agonizing we crossed some twenty or thirty feet above the top of the wall i could see as we came near the jagged line of white patches where the heads of the massacred turks placed there on spikes in old days seemed to give still their grim warning seeing that they made in themselves a difficulty of landing on the wall i deflected the plane so that as we crept over the wall we might if they became displaced brush them to the outside of the wall a few seconds more and i was able to bring the machine to rest with the front of the platform jutting out beyond the tower wall here i anchored her fore and aft with clamps which had been already prepared whilst i was doing so tuta had leaned over the inner edge of the platform and whispered as softly as the sigh of a gentle breeze the answer came in a similar sound from some twenty feet below us and we knew that the prisoner was alone forthwith having fixed the hook of the rope in the ring to which was attached her belt i lowered my wife her father evidently knew her whisper and was ready the hollow tower a smooth cylinder within sent up the voices from it faint as were the whispers father it is i tuta my child my brave daughter quick father strap the belt round you see that it is secure we have to be lifted into the air if necessary hold together it will be easier for rupert to lift us to the airship rupert yes i shall explain later quick quick there is not a moment to lose he is enormously strong and can lift us together but we must help him by being still so he won't have to use the windlass which might creak as she spoke she jerked slightly at the rope which was our preconcerted signal that i was to lift i was afraid the windlass might creak and her thoughtful hint decided me i bent my back to the task and in a few seconds they were on the platform on which they at tuta's suggestion lay flat one at each side of my seat so as to keep the best balance possible i took off the clamps lifted the bags of ballast to the top of the wall so that there should be no sound of falling and started the engine the machine moved forward a few inches so that it tilted towards the outside of the wall i threw my weight on the front part of the platform and we commenced our downward fall at a sharp angle a second enlarged angle and without further ado we slid away into the darkness then ascending as we went when the engine began to work at its strength we turned and presently made straight for ilsa the journey was short not many minutes it almost seemed as if no time whatever had elapsed till we saw below us the gleam of lights and by them a great body of men gathered in military array we slackened and descended 
The crowd kept deathly silence, but when we were amongst them, we needed no telling that it was not due to lack of heart or absence of joy. The pressure of their hands as they surrounded us, and the devotion with which they kissed the hands and feet of both the voivode and his daughter, were evidence enough for me, even had I not had my own share of their grateful rejoicing. In the midst of it all, the low, stern voice of Roque, who had burst away to the front beside the Vladica, said, Now is the time to attack the tower. Forward, brothers, but in silence. Let there not be a sound till you are near the gate. Then play your little comedy of the escaping marauders, and will be no comedy for them in the tower. The yacht is all ready for the morning, Mr. St. Ledger, in case I do not come out of the scrimmage if the blue jackets arrive. In such case, you will have to handle yourself. God keep you, my lady, and you too, Voivode. Forward! In a ghostly silence, the grim little army moved forwards. Rook and his men with him disappeared into the darkness in the direction of the harbour of Ilsen. From the script of the Voivode, Peter Vissarion, July 7th, 1907. I had little idea when I started on my homeward journey that it would have such a strange termination. Even I, who, ever since my boyhood, have lived in a world of adventure, intrigue, or diplomacy, whichever it may be called, statecraft, and war, had reason to be surprised. I certainly thought that when I locked myself into my room in the hotel at Ilsen, that I would have at last a spell, however short, of quiet. All the time of my prolonged negotiations with the various nationalities, I had to be at tension. So, too, on my homeward journey, lest something at the last moment should happen adversely to my mission. But when I was safe on my own land of the Blue Mountains, and laid my head on my pillow, where only friends could be around me, I thought I might forget care. But to wake with a rude hand over my mouth, and to feel myself grasped tight by so many hands that I could not move a limb, was a dreadful shock. All after that was like a dreadful dream. I was rolled into a great rug, so tightly that I could hardly breathe, let alone cry out. Lifted by many hands through the window, which I could hear was softly opened and shut for the purpose, and carried to a boat. Again lifted into some sort of litter, on which I was borne a long distance, but with considerable rapidity. Again lifted out and dragged through a doorway opened on purpose. I could hear the clang as it was shut behind me. Then the rug was removed, and I found myself still in my night gear in the midst of a ring of men. There were two score of them, all Turks, all strong-looking, resolute men, armed to the teeth. My clothes, which had been taken from my room, were thrown down beside me, and I was told to dress. As the Turks were going from the room, shaped like a vault, where we then were, the last of them, who seemed to be some sort of officer, said, If you cry out, or make any noise whatever whilst you are in the tower, you shall die before your time. Presently some food and water were brought me, and a couple of blankets. I wrapped myself up and slept, till early in the morning. Breakfast was brought, and the same men filed in. In the presence of them all, the same officer said, I have given instructions that if you make any noise or betray your presence to anyone outside this tower, the nearest man is to restore you to immediate quiet with this yatagan. If you promise me that you will remain quiet whilst you are within the tower, I can enlarge your liberties somewhat. Do you promise? I promised as he wished. There was no need to make necessary any stricter measure of confinement. 
any chance of escape lay in having the utmost freedom allowed to me although i had been taken away with such secrecy i knew that before long there would be pursuit so i waited with what patience i could i was allowed to go to the upper platform a consideration due i am convinced by my captors wish for their own comfort rather than for mine in the evening i was allowed to remain on the upper platform it was not very cheering for during the daytime i had satisfied myself that it would be quite impossible for even a younger and more active man than i am to climb the walls they were built for prison purposes and a cat could not find entry for its claws between the stones i resigned myself to my fate as well as i could wrapping my blanket round me i lay down and looked up at the sky i wished to see it whilst i could i was just dropping to sleep the unutterable silence of the place broken only now and again by some remark by my captors in the rooms below me when there was a strange appearance just over me an appearance so strange that i sat up and gazed with distended eyes across the top of the tower some height above drifted slowly and silently a great platform although the night was dark it was so much darker where i was within the hollow of the tower that i could actually see what was above me i knew it was an aeroplane one of which i had seen in washington a man was seated in the centre steering and beside him was a silent figure of a woman all wrapped in white it made my heart beat to see her for she was figured something like my tutor, but broader, less shapely. She leaned over, and a whispered, Shh! crept down to me. I answered in similar way, whereupon she rose, and the man lowered her down into the tower. Then I saw that it was my dear daughter who had come in this wonderful way to save me. With infinite haste, she helped me to fasten round my waist a belt attached to a rope which was coiled round her and then the man who was a giant in strength as well as stature raised us both to the platform of the aeroplane which he set in motion without an instant's delay within a few seconds and without any discovery being made of my escape we were speeding towards the sea the lights of ilson were in front of us before reaching the town however we descended in the midst of a little army of my own people who were gathered ready to advance upon the silent tower there to effect if necessary my rescue by force small chance would there have been of my life in case of such a struggle happily however the devotion and courage of my dear daughter and of her gallant companion prevented such a necessity it was strange to me to find such joyous reception amongst my friends expressed in such a whispered silence there was no time for comment or understanding or the asking of questions i was fain to take things as they stood and wait for later explanation this came later when my daughter and i were able to converse alone when the expedition went out against the silent tower tutor and i went to her tent and with us came her gigantic companion who seemed not wearied but almost overcome with sleep when we came into the tent over which at a little distance a cordon of our mountaineers stood on guard he said to me may i ask you sir to pardon me for a time and allow the voivoden to explain matters to you she will i know so far assist me for there is so much work still to be done before we are free of the present peril for myself i am almost overcome with sleep for three nights i have had no sleep but all during that time much labour and more anxiety i could hold on longer but at daybreak i must go out to the turkish warship that lies in the offing 
She is a Turk, though she does not confess to it, and she it is who has brought hither the marauders who captured both your daughter and yourself. It is needful that I go, for I hold a personal authority from the National Council to take whatever step may be necessary for our protection, and when I go I should be clear-headed, for war may rest on that meeting. I shall be in the adjoining tent, and shall come at once if I am summoned, in case you wish for me before dawn. Here my daughter struck in. Father, ask him to remain here. We shall not disturb him, I am sure, in our talking. And moreover, if you knew how much I owe to him, to his own bravery and his strength, you would understand how much safer I feel when he is close to me, though we are surrounded by an army of our brave mountaineers. But my daughter, I said, for I was as yet all in ignorance, there are confidences between father and daughter which none other may share. Some of what has been I know, but I want to know all, and it might be better that no stranger, however valiant he may be, or no matter in what measure we are due to him, should be present. To my astonishment, she who had always been amenable to my lightest wish actually argued with me. Father, there are other confidences which have to be respected in likewise. Bear with me, dear, till I have told you all, and I am right sure that you shall agree with me. I ask it, father. That settled the matter, and as I could see that the gallant gentleman who had rescued me was swaying on his feet as he waited respectfully, I said to him, Rest with us, sir. We shall watch over your sleep. Then I had to help him, for almost on the instant he sank down, and I had to guide him to the rug spread on the ground. In a few seconds he was in a deep sleep. As I stood looking at him, till I had realized that he was really asleep, I could not help marveling at the bounty of nature that could uphold even such a man as this to the last moment of work to be done, and then allow so swift a collapse when all was over and he could rest peacefully. He was certainly a splendid fellow. I think I never saw so fine a man physically in my life. And if the lesson of his physiognomy be true, he is as sterling inwardly as his external is fair. Now, said I to Tudor, we are to all intents quite alone. Tell me all that has been, so that I may understand. Whereupon my daughter, making me sit down, knelt beside me, and told me from end to end the most marvellous story I had ever heard or read of. Something of it I had already known from the Archbishop Paleologue's later letters, but of all else I was ignorant. Far away in the great west beyond the Atlantic, and again on the fringe of the eastern seas, I had been thrilled to my heart's core by the heroic devotion and fortitude of my daughter in yielding herself for her country's sake to that fearful ordeal of the crypt. At the grief of the nation, at her reported death, news of which was so mercifully and wisely withheld from me as long as possible, of the supernatural rumours that took root so deep, but no word or hint had come to me of a man who had come across the orbit of her life, much less of all that has resulted from it. Neither had I known of her being carried off, or of the thrice-gallant rescue of her by Rupert. Little wonder that I thought so highly of him, even at the first moment I had a clear view of him, when he sank down to sleep before me. Why, the man must be a marvel. Even our mountaineers could not match such endurance as his. In the course of her narrative my daughter told me of how, being wearied with her long waiting in the tomb, and waking to find herself alone when the floods were out, and even the crypt submerged, 
she sought safety and warmth elsewhere, and how she came to the castle in the night and found the strange man alone. I said, That was dangerous, daughter, if not wrong. The man, brave and devoted as he is, must answer me, your father. At that she was greatly upset, and before going on with her narrative, drew me close in her arms and whispered to me, Be gentle to me, father, for I have had much to bear, and be good to him, for he holds my heart in his breast. I reassured her with a gentle pressure. There was no need to speak. She then went on to tell me about her marriage, and how her husband, who had fallen into the belief that she was a vampire, had determined to give even his soul for her, and how she had on the night of the marriage left him and gone back to the tomb to play to the end the grim comedy which she had undertaken to perform till my return, and how, on the second night after her marriage, as she was in the garden of the castle, going, as she shyly told me, to see if all was well with her husband, she was seized secretly, muffled up, bound, and carried off. Here she made a pause and a digression. Evidently some fear lest her husband and myself should quarrel assailed her, for she said, Do understand, father, that Rupert's marriage to me was in all ways regular, and quite in accord with our customs. Before we were married I told the archbishop of my wish. He, as your representative during your absence, consented himself and brought the matter to the notice of the Vladica and the Archimandrites. All these concurred, having exacted from me, very properly, I think, a sacred promise to adhere to my self-appointed task. The marriage itself was orthodox in all ways, though so far unusual that it was held at night and in darkness, save for the lights appointed by the ritual. As to that, the Archbishop himself, or the Archimandrite of Spazak, who assisted him, or the Vladica, who acted as paranymph, will all or any of them give you full details. Your representative made all inquiries as to Rupert St. Ledger, who lived in Vissarion, though he did not know who I was, or from his point of view, who I had been. But I must tell you of my rescue. And so she went on to tell me of that unavailing journey south by her captors, of their battlement by the cordon which Rupert had established at the first word of danger to the daughter of our leader, though he little knew who the leader was, or who was his daughter, of how the brutal marauders tortured her to speed with their daggers, and how her wounds left blood marks on the ground as she passed along, then of the halt in the valley, when the marauders came to know that their road north was menaced, if not already blocked, of the choosing of the murderers, and their keeping ward over her whilst their companions went to survey the situation, and of her gallant rescue by that noble fellow, her husband, my son, I shall call him henceforth, and thank God that I may have that happiness and that honour. Then my daughter went on to tell me of the race back to Vissarion, when Rupert went ahead of all, as a leader should do, of the summoning of the Archbishop and the National Council, and of their placing the nation's hand-jar in Rupert's hand, of the journey to Ilsen, and the flight of my daughter and my son on the aeroplane. The rest I knew. As she finished, the sleeping man stirred and woke, brought awake in a second, sure sign of a man accustomed to campaign and adventure. At a glance he recalled everything that had been and sprang to his feet. He stood respectfully before me for a few seconds before speaking. Then he said, with an open, engaging smile, I see, sir, you know all. Am I forgiven, for tutor's sake as well as my own? 
By this time I was also on my feet. A man like that walked straight into my heart. My daughter, too, had risen and stood by my side. I put out my hand and grasped his, which seemed to leap to meet me, as only the hand of a swordsman can do. I am glad you are my son, I said. It was all I could say, and I meant it, and all it implied. We shook hands warmly. Tuto was pleased. She kissed me, and then stood holding my arm with one hand, whilst she linked her other hand in the arm of her husband. He summoned one of the sentries without, and told him to ask Captain Rook to come to him. The latter had been ready for a call, and came at once. When through the open flap of the tent we saw him coming, Rupert, as I must call him now, because Tuta wishes it, and I like to do it myself, said, I must be off to board the Turkish vessel before it comes in shore. Goodbye, sir, in case we do not meet again. He said the last few words in so low a voice that I only could hear them. Then he kissed his wife and told her he expected to be back in time for breakfast. That was gone. He met Rook. I am hardly accustomed to call him captain as yet, though indeed he well deserves it, at the edge of the cordon of sentries, and they went quickly together towards the port, where the yacht was lying with steam up. End of Part 11 Recording by Thomas Copeland